0: Now for this hour we'll cover four topics, four major topics in relation to Genesis 36 with Esau. The, the first is that this is in fulfillment of the promises of God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The promises of God are fulfilled or are beginning to be fulfilled here in Genesis 36. For example, Genesis 15:5, God, says to Abraham and he took him outside and said Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them and he said to him so shall your descendants be God said that to Abraham Genesis 15:5 to Isaac some similar promises Genesis 26 and verse 4 26 We'll read verses 3 and 4. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. And I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. And will give your descendants all these lands. And by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed to Isaac. Now, remember Isaac is the father of both Jacob and Esau. And this is the promise to him. Then specifically in reference to Jacob in, in reference to Jacob, we first have this implied in Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, the boundaries, the boundaries of the land of Canaan that Abraham's descendants or favored descendants, promised descendants, are going to possess. Genesis fifteen eighteen to 21. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenazite and the Kadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite. Well, which one is not mentioned? The Horite, or Mount Seir, or the land of Seir. It's not mentioned here. Only this other territory, which is what we normally call the land of Canaan or the land of Israel. And who ended up possessing that? The descendants of Jacob. The implication is that not all of them are going to possess this. Some of them are, and which some? We know it's going to be Jacob. Confirmed in Genesis twenty-eight, thirteen. Genesis 2813. We'll read 13 and 14. The Lord says to Jacob. Genesis 28:13, and behold, the Lord stood above it and said, "I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants shall also be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread out to the west and to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Thus we find the fulfillment of it. Because Esau in Genesis 36 had to separate so that his descendants and Jacob's descendants not have a dispute over living there in the land of Canaan or even intermarry. Even intermarry and obliterate the Holy See, which should not happen, it could not happen until Christ came into the world. That's the first point to make. The second point to make is that God establishes boundaries. God establishes boundaries. Though we do not have an explicit statement to that effect in Genesis 36 we said that it is implied in thirty-six, six, and seven, and in thirty-six, forty-three. Thirty-six, six, and seven, he acquired much property and possession, people and possessions, and then he took all of them to the land of Edom. And that is implied that God is the one who blessed them, and God is the one who directed him by his providence, secret providence, to go to the land of Seir or later called Edom. Not that we necessarily need to have a word from God directly to Esau to do it. That's what's meant by the secret impulse of God, the secret direction of God to cause one to make one choice above another choice. And also in verse 43, These are the habitations in the land of their possession. Habitations. Now, cross reference this to Deuteronomy chapter 2. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 1. We'll read verses 1 to 7. Deuteronomy 2, 1 to 7. Moses speaks and recounts the following. Then we turned and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea, as the Lord spoke to me, and circled Mount Seir for many days. And the Lord spoke to me, saying, You have circled this mountain long enough. Now turn north and command the people, saying, You will pass through the territory of your brothers, the sons of Esau, who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. So be very careful. Do not provoke them, for I will not give you any of their land even as little as a footstep because i have given mount seir to esau as a possession see there verse 5 i have given mount seir to esau as a possession you shall buy food from them with money so that you may eat and you shall also also purchase water from them with money so that you may drink for the lord your god has blessed you in all that you have done he has known your wanderings through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have not lacked a thing. Let's read the highlights of the subsequent narrative where God not only did it to Edom or Esau, but he did it for other tribes and made them into nations and gave them a habitation or gave them a territory, gave them boundaries in which to live. Verse 9. Then the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab, nor provoke them to war, for I will not give you any of their land as a possession, because I have given R to the sons of Lot as a possession. That land before it was called Moab was called Ar, and Moab is now to possess it. And why? I have given R to the sons of Lot. Moab was one of the sons of of Lot, For example, also with the other son of Lot. Verse 19, 19. And when you come opposite the sons of Ammon, do not harass them nor provoke them, for I will not give you any of the land of the sons of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot as a possession. God gave the Ammonites also their Territory. This is clear that God is the one who directs and gives inheritances to whomever He wishes and wherever and whenever He wishes to do so. God ultimately is the one who does so. One more cross-reference on this subject, Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, verse 24. 17:24 to 28. Acts 17:24, the apostle Paul addresses the Athenians and says the following: 17:24, the God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands; neither is He served by human hands, as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all life. And breath and all things. And he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they should see God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, even as some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. God, the Creator, the only true God, He is the one who sustains all. We don't need to sustain Him. He does not need us for anything. He gives to all life and breath and all things. Further, verse 26, He made from one every nation. He made from Adam every nation that lives on all the face of the earth. And He determined their appointed times the appointed times of all these nations and the people in those nations and the boundaries of their habitation. God establishes the boundaries. Our third point from Genesis 36. Esau was and is unsaved. Esau, unsaved. Not saved, but Unsaved. This may sound unnecessary to some ears, but it is very necessary. And let me illustrate by three examples. Several years ago, at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, in the chapel service, one professor, Malcolm Yarnell, preached a sermon on Romans 9. And in that sermon, the conclusion was, that Pharaoh and Esau are saved. Pharaoh and Esau saved. And then later in the, in the faculty room, one of the professors, another professor, walked into the room, hopping and skipping and, and jumping with a smile on his face. He saw me, greeted me, and said, Did you hear the sermon? I said, Yes. He said, He agrees with the sermon. He thinks Esau is saved. A second professor, another professor said that. Then, in recent times, in October last year, 2020, October 27th, there was a debate, a supposed debate, between Doug Wilson, a supposed Presbyterian and Calvinist, against an Arminian. And the Arminian and Wilson agreed on this point, that Esau is... Saved. They both agree that Esau is saved. And the third example, in preparation for chapter 36, I did some more reading and I have a commentary on my shelf, the Word Biblical Commentary. Word Biblical Commentary. It dubs itself as evangelical, and some think evangelical equals conservative. However, it's really a liberal commentary of pretended evangelicals, pretentious evangelicals or conservatives, but it's really a liberal commentary. If you want to see the spectrum of evangelical on the conservative side and toward the liberal side, it would be right there at the extreme left of evangelical, practically and almost just one step away from being a liberal. That's the way the Word Biblical Commentary series is. I have a commentary written on the book of Genesis by Gordon Wenham. W-E-N-H-A-M. And in his section on Genesis 36, at the end, he clearly says that Esau receives, Esau and the nation and others like them receive ultimate reconciliation. Ultimate reconciliation. And he even Presumes to use Romans 9 and 11 to prove it. He doesn't really have an exposition of those chapters, but he does cite those chapters in Romans 9 and 11 to prove his point or to buttress his point that Esau and his descendants are ultimately redeemed or reconciled to God, just like others are also reconciled to God. So, It's a very common belief. If you have not encountered it, just go ask your friends. Just raise the subject with your friends and ask them what they think. Either they will say, no way, he's not saved, or they will say, yes, I think there's a chance he was saved. They will say so. It's a very common belief to believe Esau and Pharaoh, Judas Iscariot even. Judas Iscariot is saved. It's... Common, more common than you might realize. But is that the case? We cannot misunderstand God's temporal, physical blessings to equate to ultimate, spiritual, and eternal salvation. Right. We cannot misunderstand that. Yes, God blesses the righteous and the wicked materially. But just because the wicked have material and physical blessings, it does not necessitate or equate to their favor with God, favor before God. Even when they manifest certain virtues, because many of the unbelievers are courageous people, they're honest people, many of them are, right? But that does not necessarily equate to their salvation. That's the way they misunderstand Esau such as Esau's blessings in Genesis 36, or Esau's reconciliation to Jacob in Genesis 33, so on and so forth. Why should we believe otherwise? The first example, Malachi chapter 1. Malachi 1, Malachi 1 verses 1 to 5. Remember that the prophets... And the apostles are commentaries on Scripture. That is, they are commentaries on some earlier incident or persons of Scripture. That's the nature of what a prophet and an apostle, what they do. They are commentators on what has already been said to clarify and to emphasize certain points that the people are prone to misunderstanding. That's the nature of what a prophet or an apostle is. So Malachi, being one of the prophets, many, many years later after Moses, about a thousand years after Moses, Malachi says, Malachi 1.1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? The answer, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, They may build, but I will tear down, and men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. And your eyes will see this, and you will say, May the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. In verse 2, God reiterates that He loves Jacob or loves Israel, and they challenge it. They are doubtful and perplexed about it, But God answers, Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Isn't that correct? Historically accurate? Esau and Jacob, these are the birth names of these two patriarchs. Correct? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. He loved Jacob, but hated Esau. How so and when so? How did he... Love Jacob and hate Esau. Genesis 25 23. 25, 23. And the Lord said to her, to Rebekah, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples shall be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. The older shall serve the younger. This is repeated similar words in 2740. Isaac repeats these words to Esau, his adult son. 2740. And by your sword you shall live and your brother you shall serve. Your brother you shall serve. God loved Jacob but hated Esau. He did so from the womb. From the womb. Which means Jacob and Esau didn't do something righteous or wicked to deserve God loving Jacob and hating Esau. It did not happen on the basis of good deeds or evil deeds. It happened on the basis of God's choice. We will see that point emphasized in Romans 9. Okay? Malachi chapter 1. People say Malachi 1 is about the nations, not the patriarchs. The answer is no, that's not true. It's not correct. It's about both the individual and the nations that came from those individuals. Malachi 1 is about both. Firstly, We just saw, Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Those are the individuals, the two men. But then the nations that come from them are in verse 3, 3b to 5. 3b to 5, the nation. And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Esau's territory, Mount Seir, later called the land of Edom for the nation of Edom. God devastated that place and gave it over to the wild animals. Why? How? Because the people are so few that the wild animals take over. Why did the people become so few? Because of a foreign invasion. Look at verse 4. Though Edom says... So now, who's Edom? Edom is not Esau the man, the patriarch. Edom has to be the nation, the people, his descendants who established a nation and territory, boundaries, right? Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Why would Edom say that? Because foreigners came to invade the nation Edom destroyed their buildings, crushed their people, destroyed many of their people, but the remnant among them, they say, yes, we know we've been beaten down. We know that there are ruins because of the invaders, but we're going to go back to our territory. We're going to go back to our land and we're going to rebuild. That's what they say. But God has another word for them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down it will be unsuccessful. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Does this not have to do with eternal judgment? Because they are wicked, the people, not just Esau, but the nation, the people are wicked and God's indignation, His anger is against them forever. But we should not be troubled by this Verse 5, we should say, May the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Whatever God does in Israel, may God be praised. And whatever God does outside of Israel, may God be praised. And Edom, the nation, is outside of Israel. God is praised for whatever he does. Both the individual and the nation. Clearly condemned by God because of their wickedness in the case of the nation, but because of God's choice clearly announced in reference to the man. And ultimately, we know it's a both-and situation. God chooses one for eternal life and rejects the other and condemns to eternal punishment. Eternal life and eternal punishment. Eventually, their wicked deeds will rise to the surface And that will be the evidence used against them on the day of judgment. But ultimately, by grace, one is saved. And by righteousness, one is condemned. Next, Romans 9. We're still addressing whether Esau is saved. Esau and even his descendants. Romans 9, verse 10. Romans 9:10 10, 10 to 13 And not only this, but there was Rebekah also. when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or evil, in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older Will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. The Apostle Paul puts together Genesis 25:23 and Malachi 1, 2 to 3 to point out that God chose Jacob and hated Esau. If God hated Esau, Where is Esau now that he's dead? In eternal punishment, right? He cannot be saved. Not at all. That's the whole point of the chapter. How is one ultimately saved or condemned? That's the point of Romans 9. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, 14. Hebrews 12, 14. We'll read 12, 14 to 17. Hebrews 12, 14. Pursue peace with all and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. 14 says, We ought to pursue peace with all and the sanctification and the holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. That means that if we don't pursue peace and holiness biblically defined, we will not see God. No salvation, no eternal life. 15. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Coming short of the grace of God has to be a synonym of not seeing the Lord. Correct? It's parallel to not seeing the Lord. A root of bitterness is also coming short of the grace of God, not seeing the Lord. And it causes trouble. Having trouble, biblically defined, is equated to not seeing the Lord. Then it says, many be defiled. To be defiled is another way of saying, not see the Lord. meaning God's uh, favorable disposition, His favorable face, having His face shine on us. We will not see Him. Further, verse 16 says, no immoral or godless person. Immoral or godless person. Do immoral and godless people see the Lord? No. He already said in verse 14, No, they will not see the Lord. Now, who is an example of it that everyone should know? Based on the book of Genesis. Esau. He names Esau here. Though he names Esau here, and occasionally the Bible will mention names here and there, from Genesis to Revelation, from Cain in Genesis 4, to Jezebel and the Nicolaitans in Revelation 2 and 3. Names are named. Individuals and groups are named. The Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees. Names are named like that. But sometimes God speaks in generalities. It doesn't mean only Esau is this way. That's why he's writing this letter. Because he's telling his readers, verse 4: pursue peace. See to it that no one comes short. It includes all of us also. Not to be like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. Temporary satisfaction at the expense of eternal rewards. Temporary satisfaction, physical satisfaction, jeopardizing the eternal heavenly benefits. And then in 17, it says... When he desired the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. He sought for the blessing without repentance. He wanted blessings without repentance. He wanted his best life now and forever. That's what he wanted. But he didn't want to repent now to have his best life forever. That's the problem with Esau, and that's the problem with all unbelievers. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, in any honest, objective, plain reading of the text, in its historical context, can anybody come to a conclusion other than Esau is condemned, unsaved. From Hebrews 12, Romans 9, Malachi 1. There is no other way to read it. Even if you read Genesis very carefully, you would come to the same conclusion. After all, did not the Apostle Paul prove it to the Jews in Romans 9 when he cited Genesis 25, 23? He used the book of Genesis to prove his case because it's already evident there. If we're reading it correctly objectively, without our biases, without a proclivity to say, no, I want my great-grandfather and my grandmother to go to heaven so I can't believe what you're telling me. It can't be that way. It has to be the truth, the honest truth. We have to believe what the truth is. Then the fourth topic from our chapter of Genesis 36, the fourth topic... Common grace. Common grace. For one, if you read the confessions of faith from the time of the Reformation, the Westminster Confession of Faith and the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, if you read them, there will be a paragraph or two, a section or two on this subject, not necessarily using this phrase but asserting this truth, it's there. And it's not the first place that you might find it. There are commentaries even preceding the time of the reformers where this belief was evident in ancient history among believers. And what is this belief? Whether we use the word common grace, common love, temporal blessings, what we're talking about here is that God endows the wicked, people who will never be saved, that He never intends to save, who will never believe, He endows them with many physical, temporary, material blessings. He grants them much grace, if we want to use that word. This is the typical phrase, common grace. He gives them much grace physical grace, temporary grace, temporary blessings. He grants that to them. He even, to some of them, to a fewer number of them, grants them a taste of some spiritual blessings. He grants them a temporary taste of spiritual blessings. A temporary taste of spiritual blessings. To illustrate this temporary taste of spiritual blessings... Let us go to 2 Peter 2. 2 Peter 2 20. 2 Peter 2 20. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. He's describing those who have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Temporarily. Because he says they resort to those same sins again. Someone escapes adultery. Someone escapes pornography. Someone escapes drunkenness. Someone escapes drugs. Someone escapes these sins Because he has come to hear the truth and then he attaches himself to the truth and the people who love the truth, who want to obey the truth, who believe in it and desire godliness and holiness. He attaches himself to this group, the local church, for a temporary time. And while he's coming to church, he's not going to the bar and getting drunk. When he's in the church, he's not going to the casino and squandering all of his money like he used to do because he's going to the church. Temporarily, he has relief from what he used to do. But then he resorts to his old ways. It says in verse 20, They are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. It would be better to not know anything about the truth than to know it and then reject it by indulging in sin again. And the illustration, verse 22, one who is this way is like a dog or a sow. A dog that returns to its own vomit. And then a sow, if you wash a sow, a female pig, if you wash the pig, temporarily the pig is clean. But if you leave the pig alone, We're not talking about uh, the very strict environment of many ranchers. We're not talking about that in order to raise them, to slaughter them for for our consumption. We're not talking about that kind. We're talking about the pigs that are left alone to to do whatever they want. If you were to take one of them, clean it up, and then leave it alone to do whatever it wants to do, it will find the mire. It will find the mire and go back to its old condition. So... They indulge, and the last state is worse than the first. Well, what did they enjoy in the meantime between their first condition and their last condition? What did they enjoy? Temporary spiritual blessings. Temporary is the key word. Temporary spiritual blessings. Not true, not true, fundamental, essential, spiritual regeneration and eternal life. They don't have that, but they have a taste of it, because they've been around it and they avoided their sins temporarily. So, that's common grace, properly understood, biblically understood. However, not everybody believes in common grace. There are many interpreters of the Scriptures who deny the existence of such. Some of these are skeptics and outside of Christianity and some of these are misinterpreters and false interpreters of Scripture from various theological persuasions, from various theological backgrounds. They deny the existence of common grace. They say there is no common grace because God does not bless wicked people. He doesn't bless them in any way. In fact, the blessings they have don't come from God, they come from their own hard work. If they want to call them blessings, it comes from their own hard work, not from God. And then those within Christianity who deny it, they say, the moment we assert common grace, what we're saying is they're all going to heaven. Well, we're not saying that. We're not saying they're all going to heaven. We're saying the very opposite. We're saying that because they tasted, some of them tasted some spiritual truths and then ultimately reject them, their punishment on the Day of Judgment is going to be worse. So you, within Christianity, are saying, I'm saying, they're all going to heaven, I'm saying, no, they're not going to heaven. Their punishment on the Day of Judgment will be worse. But you can't say that their punishment will be worse. So you are, in a sense, mitigating the eternal punishment of the wicked, at least some of the wicked. You are, if you deny Common grace, but is common grace a biblical concept? Is it found in Scripture? Matthew five forty-five. Matthew five forty-five. Remember, we're addressing this subject not just to answer a theological argument or dispute, but because the theological is used to miss. Use and abuse the examples and statements of Scripture in reference to wicked people who are going to hell. That's the reason we have to be careful how we understand this doctrine. Matthew five forty-five. In order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. What's God doing here? He sends his son and his rain on the evil and the good, the righteous and the unrighteous. God grants rain and rain is good because then you can have a fruitful harvest. If you have a fruitful harvest, then you can have food to eat. And God grants the sun, light and the rain on both the good and the evil, the righteous and the unrighteous. Clearly two categories of people. Or in terms of what we've said here, the reprobate or the wicked. God does so to them. That is clearly material blessings, at the very least. Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. We have the apostles preaching at Lystra. Preaching at Lystra. And the men of Lystra, they want to worship Paul and Barnabas, thinking that they are gods who have come down to earth. But he, they dissuade them, or try to dissuade them, in chapter 14. 14, 14. The context is verses 8 to 18, but we'll pick it up at 14, 14. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you in order that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And in generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways and yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. God sent them in earlier times, rain and fruitful harvests, satisfying them, and now he's sending the gospel to them that they might turn from vain things, idols, to worship the living God who is the Creator. So now they have a spiritual benefit, physical and spiritual, from God. They all don't repent. Some do. Not all, though. Acts 17. Acts 17. We read a few minutes ago. Acts 17. And we... Said in verse 25, we read and said in verse 25, He himself gives to all life and breath and all things. Right. Which includes the Athenians who don't believe. He gave to them life and breath and all things. Those have to be blessings or favor, grace, love, whatever we want to call it. And also in verse 28. We also are His offspring. You ought to know that God is your Creator, gave you all of this, so worship Him and not idols. Did all of the Athenians believe? No. No. 32 to 34 says that some of them began to sneer. They didn't believe. Others said, we shall hear you again. And then 34 Dionysius, Damaris, and others believed. So everyone who heard didn't believe. Only some did. That means they had the physical blessings, they heard the spiritual blessings, but they didn't all embrace it. Then why does God do so? Why the common grace? If we misunderstand this, we misunderstand much of The Bible. We'll go to two examples. The first one is Psalm 92. Psalm 92. Psalm 92, 5 to 15. We might say Psalm 92, 5 to 15 is just like Jesus' parable of the sower. Sower, seed, and soil. Such as in Luke 8, Four to 15. The parable of the sower is similar to Psalm 92. Psalm 92 5. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. A senseless man has no knowledge, nor does a stupid man understand this, that when the wicked sprouted up like grass, and all who did iniquity flourished, it was only that they might be destroyed forevermore. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies will perish. All who do iniquity will be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. I have been anointed with fresh oil, and my eye has looked exultantly upon my foes. My ears hear of the evildoers who rise up against me. The righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God." They will still yield fruit in old age. They shall be full of sap and very green to declare that the Lord is upright, He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in Him. Firstly, these are deep truths of God, but they're not deep truths of God that are impossible to understand. In fact, if you don't understand them, you are senseless and stupid. It says according to verse 6, senseless and stupid. If you don't understand why it is that the righteous and the wicked have certain things happen to them and God's purposes on the righteous and the wicked, if we don't understand this distinction correctly, we are senseless and stupid. Which means all these skeptics and even those within Christianity who misunderstand this doctrine are they are senseless and stupid. I didn't say it, the the holy prophet said it in Psalm 92. Inspired by the Holy Spirit. He said it. Senseless and stupid. And what is it? Remember I said the parable of the sower. In verse 7, the wicked sprouted up like grass. They sprouted up like grass very quickly. And they flourished, it says. All who did iniquity flourished. That means that temporarily we see something good happen in them. Or with them. Their circumstances, temporarily, they flourish. The grass sprouts up. The key word is momentarily or temporarily. That's what happens to them. But they will perish. Verses 8 and 9. They will perish. In fact, the reason God blessed them, both physically and spiritually, the reason God blessed them was only to destroy them forevermore. Verse seven. <clears throat> Look carefully. If we don't understand that when the wicked sprouted up like grass and all who did iniquity flourished, it was only that they might be destroyed forevermore. God raised them up to destroy them. Does this not sound like Pharaoh yeah. in um, in Exodus uh, nine seventeen and Romans nine sixteen? It sounds like Pharaoh, does it not? Pharaoh. And the same with every other wicked man. They prosper momentarily, only to be destroyed eternally. But the righteous, verses 10 to 15, the righteous understand this, and the righteous will rejoice when they understand this. And verse 12, the righteous will flourish Like the palm tree. Not like the grass, but like the palm tree. They will bear fruit. They will yield fruit in old age. Right? The wicked, they don't last and bear fruit till old age. But the righteous do bear fruit until old age. They will be full of sap and very green. That's the parable of the sower. We bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. But the others bear temporary fake fruit and they are destroyed forevermore. They fall away. This is a clear example of raising up and then destroying. Now, a specific example of it. That's the principle in Psalm 92. A specific example of this is Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. Was Daniel not a contemporary of Nebuchadnezzar? Mm -hmm. Yes. Did Daniel not preach truth to Nebuchadnezzar? Mm -hmm. Yes. So Nebuchadnezzar had a taste of spiritual truth, of spiritual blessing. He had a taste of it but he never imbibed. And God raised him up physically for the great honor that he obtained. Firstly, we see in 4.17, Daniel 4.17. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. Chapter 4, verse 25. That you be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place be with, the wild, be with the beasts of the field and you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. And seven, seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Then the fulfillment... Of this vision, Verse 28, all this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the mouth of the king, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like birds' claws. This disease or insanity has a name among the psychotherapists. It's called boanthropy. Boanthropy. That is a man behaving like uh, a bovine, uh, cattle. Boanthropy. And there is a period in Nebuchadnezzar's reign, a seven-year period of silence. Historians don't know what happened in that seven-year period. Outside the Bible, they don't say... He was driven mad, but the Bible says what happened in the seven years. Verse 34, But at the end of that period I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven for all his works are true and his ways just. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Nebuchadnezzar. This, in case you're wondering, we could address this in the question hour. But Nebuchadnezzar most likely never really and truly repented. He died an unbeliever. But we do see, in terms of his life, physical life, he had great power and privilege. And even spiritually, he had, he had one official, Daniel the prophet, and even Daniel's three friends. He had Daniel and the three friends. As advisors to help him know the way of the gospel. He refused to believe it. God punished him temporarily, then reestablished him. He understood spiritual truths, as we saw in that last section of Daniel 4. He understood, but he never repented. He's another example of an Esau. Esau was even more culpable because his whole upbringing was in the family of Isaac and Rebecca. This is what is known as common grace. It is a biblical truth. It's a doctrine distinct from effective grace, sovereign grace, special grace, elective grace, which the righteous receive and have that forevermore. Yet this other doctrine is evident in the life of Esau. Let's not misunderstand Esau or anyone else in Scripture. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.